evidence and answers. Many revere the Shroud of Turin as a sacred object, while many doubt its authenticity. Is the Shroud of Turin the very piece of cloth that was used to wrap the body of Jesus Christ? Is the image that is imprinted on the Shroud the actual image of Jesus Christ? How did that image get onto the Shroud? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Patrick Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Joining Pat today is Dr. Gary Habermas, a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University. Gary is also an expert on the Shroud of Turin. What is the verdict on the Shroud? Let's join Pat and his guest, Gary Habermas, as they investigate the mystery of the Shroud of Turin. But the only two times a face cloth is mentioned is John 11 with Lazarus and John 20 with Jesus. And both times it says rolled up and tied around the head or tied around the face. And John A.T. Robinson, the famous so-called God is Dead theologian of the 60s, wrote, believe it or not, two pro-Shroud articles. And he said, you know, what you get when you roll up a cloth and tie it around the head, you get this kind of cartoon picture of a person with a, a toothache with a cloth tied around their head. And the, the Jewish, the, the uh, Talmud commentary in the Old Testament tells Jews to tie up the jaw, bind up the jaw before they bury their dead. And so it looks like that face cloth is not something that went over the faith. The, the Greek word actually means handkerchief. Looks like it's rolled up and tied around the head. So that's not a problem. Some people say, well, the Book of Luke, for example, talks about Estonia, uh, plural, grave clothes, but the shroud is one. Well, once again, I'd say, yeah, but, you know, interestingly enough, Luke uses both the singular and the plural. Why would he do that? Well, maybe when you're talking about this main one, it's singular, and when you're talking about all of them, it's plural. But, I mean, when the Gospels themselves do that, singular or plural, you know, that's, that's not an issue here. Uh, about the only thing I can think of that would be anything, and I don't see this much of an issue at all, is that John tells us that a lot of spices were used with the body. Actually, if you figure it out, it depends on what measure you give these weights. It's often said to be 80 to 100 pounds of spices. And we know that spices came in a bunch of forms, liquid, solid, powder. And in, in certain Christian tombs, like the catacombs, they would find the spices sort of powdered, thrown up on the ceiling, sort of, a, you know, aromatic. Hard to say. Now, there are spices on the cloth that are what, you know, how, how do you test for spices? But what looked like spices on the cloth, but there's no way to guess, you know, how much of this was used, how much of this was packed around the body. That's one question for me, but I don't think that's something that, you know, verifies or falsifies the cloth. Yeah, you know, that's when you, the only thing I could think of off the bat, unless you know something else, something might occur to you, Pat. I, I don't know. Yeah, you know the uh, headpiece. So what you're saying is, it's wrapped around to keep the jaw shut, so that the corpse, right. the the jaw wouldn't be open. So it's not wrapped around the entire face like a mask. Right. It's wrapped around right. to keep that jaw shut. Almost like a do rag that we would put around our forehead, like a basketball player might put around their forehead was put the other way around the jaw and up around the top of the head. And interestingly about that, the man in the shroud seems to have something just like that around his face because the hair 
on the side of the head. It comes out. There's something between the face and the hair that it's dark. There's an open area between the face and the hair. And the hair just kind of comes out and it's frozen there, almost like when you spray hair to have it come out a little bit against the face. But there's a gap between the face and the hair. That's number one. And secondly, the beard, it, if you look at the man in the shroud, it looks like his beard is rather short, sort of like people often wear beards today. The beard is short. But when you keep looking, when you stare at it, there are lines across the man's throat, inches below where it looks like that beard ends. About two inches below that, there are lines. And, and ancient artists who thought they were painting Jesus, they didn't know what those lines were. But I mean, man, if this is authoritative, we've got to put them in. So they just put these lines. There are paintings in the ancient world with lines across the neck of Jesus. And, and in the 3D photos that bring this stuff out, the beard is actually pulled back. There is something that's coming underneath the chin, and that's why what pops out from underneath it looks like a short beard, you know, the kind that just kind of, you know, the goatee portion kind of pops out. And the longer beard is pulled underneath the chin, but comes further down. Actually, the man buried in the shroud has quite a long beard. It probably comes down, let's say, three to four inches below his chin. So that's one more reason to think we might have evidence of that kind of face cloth right on the shroud. Wow. You know, well, critics also point out that the Jewish burial rituals require that people wash the body yep. before they are wrapped. But this man doesn't appear to be ceremonially uh, washed before burial. Is there a yeah, problem great. there? Yeah, great question. And maybe I should have mentioned that when I mentioned the spices as a potential discrepancy with the Gospels. Ken Stevenson and I, when we did our second book in 1990, The Shroud and the Controversy, the first one's called Verdict on the Shroud. They're both out of print, but they're, you know, available, uh, used, used bookstores and so on. Ken and I actually had a difference of opinion on several matters. So when we wrote our second book, one of us would argue one view, and one of us would argue another view on, on several things. And that's one of the ones where we actually took both sides. The yes, it was washed. No, it wasn't washed. The, the yes, the body was washed argument would go like this. They may have washed his body, but with a body that badly beaten up, I mean, with over 100 whipping wounds, the the scalp wounds, and we all know how, how much blood you get from a scalp wound, the large wound in the side, almost two inches across, nail wounds, the four nail wounds in the feet and wrists, blood is going to ooze. And contrary to popular opinion, dead bodies do bleed. Dead bodies do ooze. In fact, there's one of the many medical doctors who study the shroud, is a pathologist, Fred Zugaby, and he talks about how bodies ooze in a, in a lab when you're doing, you know, work on autopsies. And so some have said, yes, the body was washed, and what you see is post-mortem blood and water, you know, separation of blood and serum oozing from the wounds. He's just got a lot of wounds, and blood coagulates in a dead body, yes, but before blood coagulates, it's got to go somewhere. If there's holes there, it, it, it's going to you know, run out. That's one argument. The argu other argument is, no, that was the normal procedure, yes, but 
they were in a huge hurry. They had to get the body buried before sundown because of the Sabbath. The Sabbath starts roughly, the new day starts at roughly, it's sundown every night. So if you figure Sabbath is going to start six-ish on a Friday night, we've got to get the body in the tomb. Well, the Talmud also said, the same one that says tie up the jaw, says you cannot bury a body on the Sabbath. And you had to bury bodies pretty quickly in those days without embalming and, and all that. And so they were in a huge rush to get this body in the ground. I mean, some people say, well, why, don't, why, weren't they, why weren't they taking this cloth and wrapping it around like a mummy? Well, because Jews weren't Egyptians, and we don't you know, know that Jews buried like that. But another reason is they were just in a huge hurry, and they draped this cloth over it. Now, what were the women doing on Sunday morning? They were coming back with spices, and they said, who's going to roll the stone back for us because the stone is great? They were coming back to finish the process. So the other argument is, no, the body wasn't washed. They, it was more important that they get it in the tomb, and on Sunday morning, bright and early, it's no longer the Sabbath, Sabbath Saturday, they're coming back, and they're going to finish the burial process. And one of the things spices do is clean and they could have been, you know, almost for sure would have cleaned the body again and maybe wrapped it a different way. But, of course, we never got that far. Jesus was gone. Yeah, now that would make sense why the woman would be coming early in the morning with spices. That, right. that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it would, because they didn't finish the process. So, to me, any question as to, you know, how come it looks like it's washed or not washed, I thought they wrapped shrouds like this? How come this one's simply laid on top and underneath? I think any of those kind of questions, it's a question mark. It's a very fair question mark, because the question is, how much can we get done and get him buried by sundown? That's the main question. And if he dies at three-ish in the afternoon and sundown is six-ish, you know, we've got to get him to this, we've got to get him down off the nails maybe clean them up, certainly take them where the tomb is, and do some minimal things in burial. We've just got to get them in there before the Sabbath starts. That's important, and then we'll finish it. Yeah. Well, there's another charge by the critics who say, you know, there's no mention of the shroud in early church writings, and you think an artifact like this, there would be the early church fathers mentioning it in quite a few significant places. Is that correct? Well, you'd think so. And by the way, there are mentions of a, of a garment of Jesus. A friend of mine told me that he had assembled three dozen such references. And the original book I told you by Ian Wilson on the Shroud of Turin that came out about, I want to say, 1978, it lists a lot of these. Now, true, they're later. They're later references, like in the early to late Middle Ages. But there might be questions. That, that, that's thoughtful. I mean, it's not a contradiction. But you might think that there might be some more mentioned than that, and I think that that is a good question. As far as why that could be, first of all, there are some references. I've seen a reference in one book that we have a shroud, we have reference to a cloth, a burial garment, as early as 120 A.D. So there are some. Don't forget, there are two mentions in the Gospels of a cloth, one in Luke and one in John. Now, Luke, which I think is 2412, there's a variant reading there. I'll let you explain that to your, your folks. But, you know, some translations have and some don't. It's clearly mentioned in John. 
that there is a garment. But another thing that some people say is Jews were not really supposed to handle garment that wrapped a dead man. It was unclean. Why would they keep this one? Well, if they believed it was the Son of God, and if they believed it was uh, that it could, a picture of his you know, resurrection, that would be enough reason to keep it. But, you know, you probably go around telling everybody, I've got this uh, burial linen in my house here, or in this, you know, church or something. It's a tough question no matter what, but there are some references. And another thing is, too, is what I said about the cloth being hermetically sealed in a wall for a few hundred years. It just may not have been known. But you know what? Up through about the 10 or 1100s, they would put a cloth on display from time to time that was said to have the face of Christ on it. That is noted. I mean, it it would be put out for display. And so, I mean, we do have some references. Would I like more? Yeah, I'd like more. But we still have to explain the science. Now, the picture of the man on the shroud, is that where we get the popular picture of Jesus that we see in paintings nowadays? It is where we get the mo- probably the most popular species of picture, let's say. If you see old medieval-type paintings and you say... I, I mean, the kind of thing where you look and you don't say, oh, man, that's Moses. It's the kind where you look and you say, yep, that's Jesus. That kind of picture, there are many images that were painted of Jesus where the person is patterning it off the shroud face, believing him to be... I mean, I mean, what's more authoritative than if you have a picture of Jesus' face, i.e. the shroud picture? And so you'd paint that. You wouldn't paint your buddy's thoughts, you know, about it. So it's set out there for, you know, a person to, uh, to paint. In fact, there's spattered little tiny flecks of paint found on the shroud. We don't have paint in the image area that can account for that image, but I mean little kind of flecks like uh, you would expect on a drop cloth if you were, you know, painting your uh, living room. But they thought they were painting the face of Jesus, and I already gave an example earlier how they would put lines across the throat. To me, one of the most interesting things are medieval paintings where they put lines across the throat about three, four inches below the chin line. Hard to explain, but the lines are present on the shroud. You can see them. So why do you put them in your painting? There's a triangular, odd triangular shape between the eyes of the man in the shroud. And they paint their paintings of living Jesuses, pre-crucifixion Jesuses, with that same triangle between his eyes. Jesus, you know, in the Gospels is beat up pretty well, while the man in the shroud has bruises on his face. And sometimes they painted the living Jesus, the pre-crucifixion living Jesus, with bruises on his face, the same sort of marks. So, and by the way, this is one of the most intriguing arguments that the carbon dating, the 88 carbon dating is wrong. Um, We have those kind of paintings of Jesus, the triangle between the eyes, the lines across the throat, things like that. We have artwork, as in the famous picture of Jesus in St. Catherine's Monastery, down below the Dead Sea, that famous picture. That is a, if, I'm not, if I remember correctly, it's a 5th century A.D. painting, 5th century. The Romans actually made a couple gold coins with Jesus, saying something like, um, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And little tiny gold coins, I've got a friend who's got an authentic one from that time, 
And we're talking 690s to the early 700s. Now, if you have coins that have up to 200 features in common between the shroud and the coins, which these have been determined to have, how do you have that image of Jesus from the 500s, 600s, 700s, which are, you know, getting close to, well, not a thousand, but 7,800 years prior to that carbon-14? How do you get this notion of a triangle between Jesus' eyes and lines going across his throat and bruises on his face and things like that? So it certainly looks like the shrouds are around way before that time. Well, I guess the bottom line here then, what does the shroud prove? I mean, is this strong evidence for the resurrection? I mean, well, what does the shroud prove here? I've been doing this for a long time, 35 years, and I ask myself that question all the time, Pat. I think, yeah, wow. I'll tell you what, uh, this is maybe the best way I could say it. Many years ago, right after I wrote my doctoral dissertation, I moved to Montana and I was teaching in a Bible college. I did a review of a couple, three new things on the Shroud for Christianity Today. And I was doing this review, and I walked through the house. Now, you know, I'm the guy that, you know, I've done... 20-ish books on the resurrection, and I was walking around my house, and I said to myself, doing this article on the Shroud, I thought, wow, Jesus really did rise from the dead. You go, duh, you're the guy that did all those books. I mean, sure, I'm aware of what I wrote, and I'm aware of the historical arguments, but this thing is just so starkly real. Now, most of the time, I'm just kind of really laid back about it, and I'll go, yeah, 60% 60% likely, 70% likely, 80% likely. I mean, 80 is a C on one of my exams. I mean, that's not a high score, quote-unquote. But, but there are some days when I think it's 90% or higher. You can't really explain. There's really no obvious weak points to step in here and say this argument's baloney. And I still say this man is a crucified man in the right time frame with the odd things done to him that were done to Jesus. And you could say, well... They crucified some poor soul to look just like Jesus and wrapped him with the cloth, and for whatever crazy reason the, the image got on there, they didn't expect that. I mean, it's just natural, whatever. Okay, fine. There are hundreds of garments in existence, burial garments, and there's decomposition and there's blood, but there are no images on these cloths. How do you get this incredible image? And, and most of all, and if I just pick one thing, this 3D image, in particular, the teeth, how do we get these? Something's backlighting this thing. Something's bringing the image out inside his mouth and putting the image on the outside where he can see it outside the mouth. Where, where are we getting these teeth down his, you know, an inch below his lip? Where, where are you seeing these things? How's this coming from? So, yeah, there are times when I think about this and I think, you know something? It'd be just like God to have left us something like that. So I try to be really careful not to build it up and not to sound real bombastic. And, but it's exciting. It's, it's hard not to think we might have some evidence for the resurrection here. And since the shroud is sort of a, it's a photographic negative, the image on the shroud is a photographic negative. If it's x-ray, that's how we get images. It's a type of an x-ray, is a type of photo. And one of the first books that came out in the late 70s that said, this might be a photograph of the resurrection of Jesus. And as crazy as that sounds, it's possible. It's possible that's what it is. And it keeps me guessing. But to me, that possibility is very comforting. It could be wrong. 
We lose nothing if it's wrong. In the meantime, we ought not worship it, or we ought not, you know, uh, we need to be careful. But if God allowed it to be left, we can talk about it. Yeah, well, today, I don't know if you could do this, but uh, today, what percentage would you put that you think this may be indeed the Shroud of Jesus? I mean, 60%, 70%? Yeah, today, you know, it, that's a key word, today, because I, I really do, I'll read something else tomorrow, and I'll, I'll put the percentage down 10 points or up 10 points. I'm just, you know, because that's, that, when you're dealing with science, the number fluctuates when you find new data. The data that came out 10 days ago are pretty exciting. The two pieces in particular that it, it works in the time frame of a little before to a little after Jesus' time, plus or minus, that and the fact that we have what looks like radiation coming out from a dead body of a man who was crucified. Right now, I'd say 85. Well, maybe that's 90, pretty high. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't really. There, there are no easy pickings. There's no easy place to step in and say, this is a joke because, you know, this is false. And I'll tell you this too, Pat. Even if this is not Jesus' burial garment, even if it's not, if let, let's say it's a real crucified man, but not Jesus, it still gives us incredible information about the data of crucifixion, because dozens of medical doctors have studied this thing, and what we learn from the shroud is amazing in medical terms. So we learn, you know, if we found a crucifixion victim, we did in 1968, but if we found a whole body of a crucified victim, we it, we'd you know, if it wasn't Jesus, we'd still be amazed at what we can learn from it. So that's valuable. And lastly, I think the shroud confronts us with the suffering of Jesus. Let's just say for the sake of the moment, let's say it's not Jesus's. Okay, but this is the closest any of us are going to come to seeing what that brutal death did to Jesus. I mean, now we have the, you know, the movie out there, The Passion of the Christ. But if someone go look, look at that. But by the way, they used the shroud in that movie is one of the sources they use for that film. But, I mean, these are the things that are about the closest we're going to get to seeing visually what crucifixion was like. So on a on another level, it's a good reminder of the event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is at the center of Christianity, the gospel, which is the reason for our hope and our eternal life. Yes, and besides the shroud, there is good evidence for the resurrection of Christ, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, like I said, 20 books worth. I've done an awful lot on this. And I have said, in print, just in case I ever have to say this, just in case the shroud has ever exploded, I have said in print many, many years ago, and I say it on my lectures regularly, I think the historical evidence for the resurrection is better than the shroud evidence for the resurrection. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to let the shroud, you know, come to the aid of the historical evidence if, if it deserves that. I think at least deserves to be put on the table for discussion. Outstanding. You've been listening to Dr. Gary Habermas, a distinguished research professor at Liberty Baptist Seminary. He is chairman of the Department of Philosophy, uh, has written numerous books in defense of the resurrection, and has debated this topic with some of the top skeptics from around the world. Uh, Gary, tell us where we can get some more information on the Shroud, but also on other articles you've written. Well, there's probably some things on my website. I don't do my website. Somebody else does it. But GaryHabermas.com. I think you'll find some things on the Shroud there. There are definitely a lot of things on the resurrection on that website. GaryHabermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S.com. The best Shroud uh, website there is 
it was put together by a researcher from the 1978 investigation. His name is Barry Schwartz, and your listeners may be interested to know that he's Jewish. I think he will tell you he's not a Christian, but he's a great guy, a great friend, and he's got probably the best website out there. It's called Shroud.com, very simply, Shroud.com. Where do you think this Shroud debate is going? It doesn't seem like it's be, it'll be going away anytime soon. No, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Actually, <laughs> we just heard about this new testing about 10 days ago. It's not, I'll just say it this way. It's not the only thing going on in the world right now in the Shroud. Wow. Other things, other results may be forthcoming in the next year or two. Hard to say. Are we, you know, who knows where the data are going? It, they haven't been produced yet. So there are other things going on. And, but I think something that has to do with dating and has to do with the cause of the image, I think they're about as exciting as you can get on this subject. Wow, fascinating topic. Well, Gary, thanks for being with us these past couple shows. Not a problem, Pat. I enjoyed it. You had such good questions. A lot of, a lot of times the interviews I do, I kind of just roll my eyes and I'm thinking, man, I wish this guy had done more research on this topic. But you did a great job. You had everything lined up there, did some good study, and I really enjoyed our time. All right. Thank you very much. This concludes Pat's interviews on the Shroud of Turin with Dr. Gary Habermas. If you missed any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire interview and enjoy other great interviews and resources right there on the website. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by today's show, would you please consider supporting this show and Pat's ministry in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Please join us again each week for more evidence and answers as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ. <laughs>